All right, we are here with Peter Bakes today. Peter is a physician in the ER at Swedish Medical Center in Inglewood, Colorado. Um, we're going to start out just hearing a little bit about Peter's background. Peter, tell me how you came to practice as an ER physician in Colorado. Sure. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, so uh, I actually grew up uh, in the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, I was born in the city, but uh, moved out. My parents were uh, immigrants, um, so that was one of the things that sort of uh, made it appealing to me to learn about medicine around the world. Um, growing up, uh, <clears throat> I always wanted to uh, go into medicine uh, uh, because of uh, the opportunity to help people and sort of uh, the scientific focus. Um, I went to Duke undergraduate where I was a, a chemistry major. Uh, Harvard Med, uh, and then did my residency in LA at uh, the county hospital for UCLA uh, called Harbor, and then uh, decided to move my family out. Uh, my wife was also an emergency uh, medicine physician uh, to come out here to uh, the Purple Mountain Majesties uh, uh, so that we could uh, uh, enjoy all the things that Colorado affords both uh, at work and outside of work. Cool. Well, I have one very important question. Are you a Duke or a UNC fan? You told me you weren't going to antagonize me during this interview, Rachel. Uh, I'm trying to stay composed here. Of course, I'm a, a Duke fan. Uh, I don't want to hear anything about uh, the Tar Heels uh, now or ever again in my life. <laughs> so I shouldn't mention that my husband's a huge fan, and by default, I am. I think this over. <laughs> March Madness will be fun this year. All right. What we really came to talk about today is Pete's going to talk about travel medicine. And first, how did you become passionate about travel medicine? Sure. So as I mentioned initially, uh, you know, my parents emigrated from Czechoslovakia uh, and I spent uh, several summers growing up there. Uh, I had some family members there uh, that were in medicine, so got exposed to uh you know, more of a European uh, perspective on medicine, but really in earnest, uh, uh, I became uh, interested in travel medicine uh, in med school and then during residency. Uh, it was clear to me sort of several years into med school that I wanted to, you know, uh, uh, practice uh, with an underserved population. And I always had my sights set on uh, Southern California. Uh, and, you know, those emergency rooms, uh, uh, they deal with a lot of native Spanish speaking, uh, uh, patients. They have a lot of travelers, uh, uh, going, uh, back and forth across the border. Um, so with that, uh, I learned, uh, medical Spanish in medical school, uh, traveled to Guatemala for three months, uh, where I worked in, uh, a real urban gritty ER, uh, that saw basically extraordinary cases, which included the infectious disease that is the sort of cornerstone of travel medicine uh, here in the States. Uh, and then uh, thereafter, during my residency, uh, that's just something that just conceptually uh, was a really interesting topic. And then by the nature of the patients that we saw was something that we uh, frequently had to, uh, you know, evaluate and treat uh, patients with travel-related illnesses. So... Uh, I would say, you know, it, it, I had my interest peaked uh, just growing up, uh, uh, but it really became honed uh, during my uh, med school, <clears throat> excuse me, my med school and uh, my residency experience. Great. 
Um, can you tell us, just give us an overview of what travel medicine means to you and what are the biggest point um, take-home points for um, the beginning learners that are just learning about travel medicine? Sure. Uh, so, you know, obviously uh, in this day and age, uh, there are uh, a lot of people who travel across international borders, uh, something like 50 million people a year. Uh, travel across international borders and they get exposed to not only sort of the environment uh, in those foreign countries, uh, but in, they get exposed to a different healthcare delivery system. And because of their immune status, uh, they are subjected to uh, a wide variety of illnesses that uh, are not endemic to the countries that they came from. Uh, so, you know, overall, I would say it's you know, a function of world travel and people going into environments uh, where uh, they're exposed to a variety of typically infectious diseases uh, that, you know, they have, have not been exposed to and they have to function in a setting uh, uh, abroad where the healthcare delivery system uh, is different than what they uh, uh, have come accustomed to. And then they come here uh, and oftentimes manifest uh, uh, aspects of those illnesses and, you know, uh, the healthcare teams here uh, don't have uh, a ton of experience with a lot of those uh, topics. So from my perspective, travel medicine is really about having the expertise to have a basic background understanding of the types of conditions that people get exposed to, the aspects of their history and exam that are relevant in terms of formulating your differential diagnosis, the types of testing and treatment strategies that uh, need to be undertaken to effectively care for those patients. Okay, Pete, so do you have any um, specific background information that you like to get from patients when they come back from after traveling, um, questions that you ask them that really helps you get down to your differential diagnosis? Sure. So I'll start uh, by, by giving you some background information on the way I generally think about travel medicine. And then I'll talk a little more specifically about the approach that uh, I would take uh, in evaluating a patient that came in with a travel-related illness complaint. So as far as background, I think it's important as a physician to think about sort of the most common things uh, that are problems. And then certainly as an emergency physician, you think about the most dangerous things. So as far as most common, uh, you know, about 40% of travelers will experience some sort of diarrhea-related illness. Uh, usually that's uh, uh, E. coli, and that's commonly called uh, traveler's diarrhea. Uh, so that would be sort of the thing that you would see most commonly. As far as most dangerous, uh, the most dangerous thing that uh, uh, a traveler can come back with is malaria, and specifically falciparum malaria, which is one of the four species of malaria. Uh, and the relevance there is that those patients can present with very nonspecific symptoms, things just like fever and malaise. And even with the best care, you know, the mortality uh, from uh, falciparum malaria can be you know, anywhere from 1% to 4% and higher in higher risk populations, such as the elderly or someone with immunocompromise. In between those sort of most common presentations, and that most dangerous presentation, there's a variety of conditions that, you know, you have to be familiar with the specific clinical presentation, uh, things like dengue fever, 
uh, typhoid fever, and then other sort of more obscure conditions uh, that I think we'll get into a little further along. So as far as your specific approach, uh, when uh, a patient comes in with a travel-related illness complaint, I would say uh, just like uh, the paradigm for really any other uh, complicated condition that you're evaluating in the emergency room, 90% of your uh, data that's going to allow you to formulate a comprehensive differential diagnosis, come up with a workup, come up with a treatment plan, and establish a disposition comes from the history. So most specifically, or uh, uh, more specifically, I'd say that the pre-travel history is essential. So you want to know uh, whether or not the patient uh, received uh, vaccinations, and that includes, you know, uh, all their routine vaccinations, as well as sort of recommended or essential vaccinations uh, for the traveler. So specifically with regards to that, you know, there are conditions like measles and rubella, and, you know, in some locales like Pakistan and Afghanistan, polio uh, is uh, experiencing resurgence. So things that, you know, almost all Americans are, are immunized against, uh, that they're immunized against, and then as they get older, their immunity wanes, are illnesses that are uh, of varying degrees of prevalence in, the, in those other countries. So, you know, polio wouldn't be something that you'd even consider here, but if you had a traveler that had returned from uh, Pakistan with the appropriate clinical syndrome, you know, you would worry uh, uh, about the, that condition. Furthermore, as far as sort of uh, recommended uh, 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 vaccinations, you know, for most of these countries uh, where Americans would be traveling to, uh, like Latin America or Central America, Southeast Asia, really any place besides uh, 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 Western Europe, you know, conditions such as typhoid and hepatitis A, uh, where there are available vaccines, those conditions are relatively prevalent and many travelers, if they seek medical attention prior to traveling, would be appropriately immunized against those conditions. Furthermore, especially with regards to malaria, uh, there's prophylactic regimens. So malaria is uh, prevalent uh, really anywhere except for uh, North America, excluding Mexico and Western Europe. And any traveler going to uh, those endemic regions uh, should be considered for malaria prophylaxis. So depending on uh, uh, whether or not that patient sought medical attention and uh, was initiated on prophylaxis and was compliant with prophylaxis, that changes their risk. Um, having said that, you know, even uh, patients uh, who uh, have received prophylaxis uh, that's appropriate for that region uh, uh, still have to be considered and sufficiently excluded for malaria. So that would be sort of the pre-travel history. Uh, as far as the travel history, you know, the, the things that are essential to understand is where those uh, uh, patients went during their stay and what type of uh, environmental exposures they had, because that becomes extremely relevant to uh, the types of illnesses that they could get. So more specifically, you know, were they confined to urban settings or resort settings, or did they travel, uh, did they venture outside the confines uh, into more rural settings? What type of foods uh, were they exposed to? Uh, did they drink any non-potable water um, did they engage in any high-risk uh, behaviors, you know, sexual activity, tattoos, or piercings? 
So all of those things, as far as the travel history, become relevant in terms of uh, the types of infections that you could be susceptible to. And then finally, sort of, uh, I would say, uh, uh, perhaps the most relevant is the, the actual syndrome that the patient is presenting with. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, it ends up that uh, these conditions, just like, you know, traveler's diarrhea presents with non-bloody diarrhea and malaria presents with generally fever and malaise, really any of these travel-related conditions can be placed into general syndromes. So the way I organize my thinking about that is, does the patient have sort of a nonspecific viral type syndrome uh, where they have fever and malaise, perhaps a rash? That raises the question of whether or not they have malaria, dengue, chikungunya, uh, which is another common virus uh, 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 brought in uh, or carried by the same uh, mosquito uh, that exposes people to uh, dengue and actually Zika virus. Uh, Typhoid can present nonspecifically uh, with uh, fever and malaise, maybe some abdominal uh, cramping uh, or constipation, rarely diarrhea, uh, which is uh, unexpected for many people because they feel like uh, typhoid is caused by a salmonella species. Do the patients have a predominantly GI presentation? So we talked about uh, E. coli, uh, namely enterotoxigenic E. coli, uh, which is a non-bloody diarrhea, that would be the most common cause, but, you know, some uh, patients can present if they went to an area uh, that was endemic for cholera. Uh, so that's, you know, really copious diarrhea, so-called rice water diarrhea. Uh, sometimes people can use, lose 20, 30 liters of fluid in a day. So that's fundamentally much different than the presentation for a garden variety uh, E. coli uh, and then you have sort of the uh, other infectious uh, invasive uh, pathogens, things that uh, you would think of uh, there would be uh, things like Salmonella, Shigella, uh, Yersinia, Campylobacter, uh, Amebiasis. Um, sort of going down systematically, is it, a, is it a predominantly respiratory presentation? Those become a little more straightforward uh, because many of the common uh, pathogens that cause travel-related illness and respiratory symptoms are the things that we would typically think of. So things like influenza, mycoplasma, community-acquired pneumonia. Um, and then finally, uh, I would say it's sort of uh, patients that present with predominantly CNS-type symptoms, so altered mental status. So you know, malaria is a big player there, but then you start to consider things like menin uh, meningitis or schistosomiasis. So to summarize what I would say, as far as your general approach, you know, you should have some background on what are sort of the most common uh, uh, conditions, uh, what are sort of the dangerous conditions uh, not to miss, and then as you organize uh, yourself as far as evaluating the patient in terms of the history and exam, a real focus on the pre-travel history, which is sort of the vaccinations, both routine and recommended, the prophylaxis, specifically the malaria prophylaxis that they may or may not have uh, received, and then organizing your thinking along the different clinical syndromes. Do, do the patients present mainly with sort of a nonspecific constitutional viral type syndrome, where it's malaria, dengue, uh, uh, the, uh, being the most uh, concerning uh, to consider and exclude, uh, or do they have 
uh, respiratory, GI, or CNS manifestations. And you know, once you place a patient into one of those categories with a good history, then you can start your evaluation, uh, the workup, uh, and you know, as you rule out diagnoses or uh, 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 make certain diagnoses, then that obviously guides your treatment and disposition. All right, so now that we know a little bit more of a background about travel medicine and how to get a good patient history, their pre-travel and travel history, once they're in your ER and you have that information, what are your next steps? Are there specific tests that you can do in the ER versus send out? How do you get to your final diagnosis and treatment in that patient? So, you know, generally when you think about these things, you uh, try and uh, assign a pretest probability to certain conditions, and if you have a sufficiently high pretest probability, uh, then you uh, perform tests, uh, which you know if they have appropriate sensitivity and specificity, allow you to make a diagnosis or exclude a diagnosis sufficiently. So that's sort of a lot of medical jargon, but if you if you sort of break it down into how we'd actually do it in the trenches reality is that most of the time uh, these patients present uh, with relatively nonspecific symptoms or they fit into that category of, uh, you know, viral syndrome. Uh, so going back to some of the points that we made earlier in this podcast, reality is that the absolute imperative is to rule out malaria. Uh, and then depending on how uh, uh, the, the other aspects of the clinical syndrome that the patient may have, you tailor your testing to those specific conditions. But as a rule of thumb, I would say that uh, you generally send a thick and thin smear. And that's something where, uh, in our setting, uh, a lab tech comes down to the emergency room and plates uh, the patient's blood and then looks at it under the microscope. The purpose of the thick smear uh, is that it looks for uh, presence of uh, parasite, namely the malaria uh, parasites under the microscope. And, you know, because it's thick, uh, meaning thick with blood, it's considered relatively sensitive uh, for detecting any of those parasites. The thin, spear, the thin smear is what they do, uh, and that oftentimes requires a pathologist review. That's when they determine the speciation. So going back to what we talked about, you know, you're really worried about sending home a patient who has potentially falciparum malaria. VVAX is the most common. Some of the things that help guide your evaluation there is, in general, uh, patients with falciparum are sicker. It's generally endemic uh, to sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, VVAX is clearly more common, but there are falciparum species uh, in the other areas in general. Uh, where you uh, find malaria, like Central South America and Southeast Asia. Um, so the, the test is considered, in general, relatively sensitive. If you are highly concerned, in general, uh, you have to repeat the thick and thin smear uh, 12 to 24 hours later for one to two days uh, because uh, the parasitemia uh, run, uh, can run in cycles uh, with malaria. Um, but as a rule of thumb, in general, if the thick smear is negative and the patient isn't highly uh, sick, uh, then uh, that patient can generally go home without initiation of treatment for malaria with follow-up to an infectious disease doctor. Other syndromes uh, that can present like a viral syndrome that are still uh, potentially dangerous are things like dengue. 
uh, dengue has a really well-described, relatively rare uh, presentation uh, called dengue shock syndrome or den dengue hemorrhagic fever. They're basically a continuum where a patient goes into uh, DIC. They're still about it's estimated to be about 15,000 uh, people per year that die from dengue, even though uh, millions and millions of people are infected annually. Uh, so the mortality is relatively low. But if you think about that number, uh, I mean, that's still a substantial worldwide problem. Uh, the presentation for dengue in general is a viral syndrome. And then about 50% of people have sort of a nonspecific macular papular rash. The testing for that in general is dengue serologies. So you send acute and then you do a subsequent follow-up of convalescent titers. So you do not have that information to make a diagnosis of dengue at sort of point of care or even before the patient leaves the emergency room. But the construct there in general is that generally it's a self-limited uh, uh, illness, uh, lasts for about a week, severe viral-like uh, symptoms. It's actually called breakbone fever because people feel like the, the pain is so severe that, they're, that it's breaking their bones. But in general, if the screening lab testing doesn't show evidence of you know, severe sepsis or septic shock or DIC pattern, uh, things like uh, you know, significantly elevated lactate, low platelet count, other things that you'd see uh, uh, with DIC, like high dimer or fibrin split products. You know, generally, you don't need to screen for that. You can get a gestalt from the patient, and if they're not toxic appearing and they're you know, screening tests, uh, like their white count isn't profoundly elevated or their platelets aren't profoundly depressed, on just those screening tests, you, you have a strong sense that this, this is not a patient who's unsafe to go home. Um, as far as, you know, uh, routine tests, in general, uh, it's uh, CBC, uh, a Chem 12, uh, and then the malaria thick and thin smear. And then the other tests are done as indicated. So specifically, if you are concerned, say, about typhoid fever, uh, patients generally don't have diarrhea, as we talked about. So it's usually, it's usually a clinical suspicion where a patient has an unexplained fever uh, for several days, generalized malaise, abdominal bloating and constipation. Certain small percentage of patients have a faint macular rash, which are called rose spots, typically that are truncal. But if you have that clinical syndrome, in general, those patients get uh, uh, cultures. <clears throat> Bone marrow aspirate is the most sensitive, obviously not generally done uh, empirically, uh, but, you know, blood cultures, if they do have some diarrhea or loose stools that can be cultured, you can do that. Uh, but generally it's blood cultures. And then, you know, if the suspicion is high enough, uh, you know, in consultation with an infectious disease doctor, you could consider uh, treating empirically with antibiotics. Um, generally it's azithro or ceftriaxone. Other uh, syndromes uh, which uh, have serologies that could be tested for, uh, rickettsial diseases generally present with a nonspecific viral picture. Oftentimes those have rash as well. They're almost universally sensitive uh, to tetracycline antibiotics. So if you have an appropriate exposure with a patient, you know, those are generally arthropod uh, exposures. So someone bit by a, a tick or a mite who comes in with nonspecific symptoms that are sufficiently uh, concerning, you know, a course of uh, 
uh, uh, tetracycline or doxycycline uh, is sometimes done empirically in consultation with the infectious disease doctor. And then really the other conditions are really if they fit a, a particular syndrome that you know, is uh, particularly concerning. And generally that would be done in consultation with an infectious disease doctor. So to summarize, I would say that because our main concern is falciparum malaria, and to some extent other subtypes or sub, uh, species of malaria, a thick and thin smear is done. Generally, you do some uh, screening blood work, CBC, Chem 12, uh, to look for you know, any evidence of severe uh, dehydration, uh, anion gap acidosis, high white blood cell count, low platelet count. Many of these conditions, you know, the, the uh, things like dengue, uh, oftentimes have a somewhat low white count and low platelet count, so that does help somewhat in the diagnosis. But fundamentally, uh, the, the testing is to uh, screen for extremely ill patients and then uh, help rule out malaria. All right, Pete, so you talked a little bit about treatment as you went through some of those different diagnoses. Um, can you sort of summarize how you would treat some of these folks in the ER, who you send out as follow-up with ID, who you would bring in and admit, and then um, follow-up with CDC, who needs to be reported so that public health authorities can follow up? Sure. So just systematically talking uh, through that. Uh, as far as treatment and dispo uh, or disposition, uh, the to continue along with the theme, our main concern uh, in a traveler uh, who's coming uh, from generally a tropical area is not to miss uh, falciparum malaria. Um, the biggest concern uh, would be a traveler going to sub-Saharan Africa, but as we talked about, uh, uh, it can be uh, in other areas as well. So really any sick patient, especially if they've gone uh, to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, who you haven't fully excluded uh, falciparum malaria has to be considered for admission. Other categories that I would say, uh, uh, or the other big category would be a patient that presents with sort of a severe sepsis or septic shock or DIC picture. You see that with some of the uh, hemorrhagic fevers. Uh, so although Zika, I'm sorry, although Ebola is not considered uh, a worldwide public health threat anymore, uh, endemic only really to Sierra Leone uh, in the latest CDC uh, uh, postings. Uh, conditions like that, uh, other uh, hemorrhagic fevers like Lassa fever or Marburg, all those things are relatively obscure, but the reality is that they're clinically apparent uh, as an extremely sick patient when you see them in the emergency room. So really, uh, it's any patient that hasn't been excluded from falciparum when you're worried uh, about them, that they're sufficiently sick, or any patient that presents with uh, severe sepsis, septic shock, or DIC picture. As far as initiating treatment, uh, you know, the things that I've seen done is uh, empirical treatment for typhoid fever uh, with azithro or ceftriaxone, empirical treatment for rickettsial diseases with doxycycline or tetracycline, uh, and really, uh, unless you have uh, uh, a follow-up doctor who feels uh, extremely comf comfortable uh, seeing uh, travel-related illness, I generally get my uh, infectious disease colleagues uh, involved early, both to guide ER management as well as secure follow-up and provide uh, the patient with you know, appropriate uh, uh, follow-up recommendations and return to ER precautions.
Um, so I would say, uh, in general, uh, these conditions are, you'd have a low threshold uh, to uh, report them to the CDC if you have a high degree of concern. Uh, but, you know, certainly uh, if you make a diagnosis such as hepatitis A or typhoid, where it's a true public health risk, uh, it's imperative that uh, you are responsible uh, for uh, reporting that to the CDC. Other conditions like dengue, which would not be, you know, epidemic uh, uh, in the United States, uh, probably I would still have a low threshold to report, but I wouldn't uh, say that that was uh, absolutely mandatory. All right, Pete. Well, thanks for explaining treatment and follow-up. Um, I'm curious, just because I've never lived in California, I'm sure our population here in Denver is a little bit different than what you saw in Southern Cal. Um, can you talk about some of those unique issues that you saw there versus here? So I would say travel-related medicine uh, here in Denver is similar to uh, travel-related medicine that you see in uh, most of the other parts of the country, namely travelers who are Americans who are traveling for leisure for a period of one or two weeks and come back with uh, uh, a symptom complex uh, and present to the emergency department for evaluation. Uh, whereas the types of people uh, that we cared for, the types of patients that we had in Southern California, you know, there was a small uh, minority that represented that population, uh, but many, many of the patients that we cared for were people that had uh, lived uh, in these uh, subtropical climates, uh, Mexico mostly, uh, for years and had recently emigrated or were undocumented and were coming for work uh, or, you know, uh, were here legally and going back and forth uh, for work. So, you know, the reality is that, you know, that patient population uh, was fundamentally different in terms of their exposures, uh, in terms of their, you know, childhood immunity to many of these conditions, in terms of the latency uh, with which the symptoms presented. I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, while I was at Harbor, if a young person came in with a seizure, it was sort of an ongoing joke where they would ask the, the intern, uh, well, what, what's your differential diagnosis of the seizure? And, you know, the earnest intern would go through, you know, some sort of mnemonic, uh, list 12 different things. And then the second year resident would come in and just look briefly at the CAT scan and say, oh, that's neuropsychosis, leaving the, you know, the intern uh, befuddled. Uh, so the reality is that the most common cause of uh, seizures in a young person uh, at the hospital I was was clearly neurocystosarcosis, and that's something that I haven't seen since. So I think that gives you a sense of, you know, the types of uh, uh, diseases that you would expect to see for travelers uh, in a large community setting where you're uh, seeing just leisure travelers versus people who have spent uh, years or nearly their entire life in these subtropical climes. All right, Pete, so that's a very interesting story about your time in Southern California. Anything specific to Denver? I know you talked about that more leisure travel population, but is there anything unique that you've noticed in your time here practicing in the ER in Denver? Uh, so, you know, uh, we do have a lot of <clears throat> avid outdoors people, uh, and in terms of infectious diseases, uh, at times people get exposed to uh, non-potable water, uh, so drinking water uh, from a stream uh, that hasn't been appropriately purified through a filter or through iodine tablets, and the risk there obviously is giardia. So 
I have seen several cases of that, uh, which is, you know, uh, classically a lot of abdominal bloating, uh, really foul smelling, uh, copious diarrhea, uh, tends to be chronic if untreated. Um, and then really the only other thing that I would say comes to mind is, uh, <clears throat> we do have some people who travel uh, to uh, the Southwest, uh, for biking trips and, you know, I have seen a few cases of Valley fever, which is coccidiomycosis. Uh, and they presented basically with respiratory complaints and pulmonary infiltrates with, uh, you know, the risk factor being, you know, inhalation of uh, dust spores uh, that give they, that gave them coxie. Uh, so relatively uh, protected here in uh, uh, Colorado. So uh, try and make it out here. Okay. Well, Pete, we want to thank you for teaching us about travel medicine. I know I'm a novice on the topic, so I certainly appreciate getting the overview and knowing the things that I need to look out for when I do have those travelers come into our ER. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. This is the most fun I've had today. <laughs>